Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by MUBI, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Word got around to the butterflies and the Baptist. My mama's phone started ringing off the hook. I can hear her now saying she ain't gonna have it. Don't matter how you feel, it only matters how you look. Go and fix your makeup, girl. It's just a breakup running. Hide your crazy and start acting like a lady. Cause I raise your better gotta keep it together even when you fall apart. But this ain't my mama's broken heart. We're back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I am your host, Brian J. Rowan, with me today to talk about Widows, newest film from director Steve McQueen. We have Michael Snydell. Hello! We have Bill Graham. Woo! And the wild card, Dan Mecca. <laughs> hey, everyone. Special guest on our episode today because he has laid claim to the fact that anytime Cynthia Revo is in a movie, he will be That's right. there. That's right. Yep. I'm a, I'm a minted Erivo head yeah. here to stay. <laughs> where, where I think, I mean, I don't know about the rest of you guys. I'm definitely a Erivo head now. Did yeah. you look up the She's pronunciation Jack. or are we just pretending that's what it is? <laughs> pretending that's what it is. We're, we're oh, rolling what? with it. Erivo. Yeah, let's just sound kind That's of how you pronounce your name. That's yeah, true. Yeah. I've sure never been more confident about a name that I'm not confident about. Cynthia Erivo. <laughs> <laughs> I dyed my hair white for this podcast because of oh, no. performance in this movie. Oh, and you can't see me, but just believe it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. A true Revo that, head. Um, that, that just happened. <laughs> anyway, let's move swiftly past this. Uh, we are, in fact, here today to talk about Widows, the newest film from director Steve McQueen. It was written yeah, yeah uh, by Steve McQueen and Gillian <laughs> Flynn of Gone Girl fame. Yeah. Also, um, what was it? Sharp Objects? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a big one. Did she have another one? Did she have another thing out that people loved? Yeah. She, the, she wrote a book called Dark Places that got made into a Charlize Theron movie that didn't really come out. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the other one. Yeah. Yeah. That, yep. You were correct. That that did not really – that doesn't exist. That's not a real movie. It's not, <laughs> you can't find it. Don't Google it. No. It's a dream. It's a collective dream that a bunch of critics had. Um, so we're here today to discuss this movie. Steve McQueen, of course, is the director of 12 Years a Slave, Hunger, and Shame. And yeah, we're, uh, we're here to talk about it. Before we do that, the usual stuff. Find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show. Facebook, search for The Film Stage Show. Go on iTunes. Give us a comment and a rating to help people find us. And of course, you can email us podcast at filmstage.com and go to patreon.com slash show. To give as little as $1 per episode to help us produce this podcast, you will be able to talk to us directly on our Slack channel, and you will get preferential treatment in all of the cool raffles that we do for movie swag from the film stage. In addition, we are, as always, brought to you by Mubi, the curated online cinema where every day their curators introduce one new film for you to watch. You have 30 days to watch each film, so that's a constantly rotating selection of 30 films for you to check out. It's um, Steve McQueen Day here on the podcast, so it makes sense that we would highlight Hunger 
his debut feature film starring Michael Fassbender and um, Liam Cunningham, I believe, is the name of the actor that I'm trying to think of. Yes. And um, that's a movie about the maze prison and the uh, hunger strike that went on there amongst uh, Irish people who wanted to be viewed as political prisoners for their acts in trying to get independence from Britain. It's a great film. I loved it. Michael, when I went on to the super cool Patreon Slack channel and screamed, hunger is on movie. You said that you just started watching it. Did you finish it? Because <clears throat> uh, <laughs> you've had an issue wow. with Steve McQueen. Wow. No, I, 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 my, my Steve McQueen thing has been like a tiny, it's, it's been a little bit of a bit, but like, I, I'll actually talk about it when, you know, the time comes, but I just really seem to like trolling about Steve McQueen, but I unfortunately did not finish hunger for a good excuse that I'm failing to come up with at the off the top of my head. That is hilarious <laughs> because I watched Hunger that night and I didn't finish watching it, but I'd already seen it like three times. Um, my excuse is that I was drunk. What was your excuse? <laughs> my excuse was my girlfriend came back, so we watched the holiday baking championship instead. <laughs> oh no. All right. Well, look, so we each had our reasons not to finish Hunger that night. One possibly better than the other. Uh, but the great thing is with movie, you've got 30 days to check it out. So there's still time. You can, of course, get a free trial of movie for 30 days by going to mubi.com slash film stage. And so if you do that right now, you can go and try to beat Michael in finally watching and finishing Hunger. By Steve McQueen. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. I don't know how many more days there is, but uh, before burning, you might want to catch Secret Sunshine, which is uh, an earlier film from Lee Chang Dong. I, I think that's going at least wider within the next couple of weeks. So I, I know a few of our listeners actually in the Slack channel have already been you know, raving about it from what I can remember, actually. Yeah. Um, what else have we got? We got Heartbeats by Xavier Dolan and um, Line in the Winter. So yeah, there's oh, a bunch of great Line stuff Line in the Winter there. is great. Great, great movie. Great, great film. Just like Hunger. Michael Snydell does not know that. Um, so that's it. That's all. <sighs> MUBI.com slash filmstage for your free 30-day trial of that. And now that we've gone through that, we can talk about Widows... Again, the newest film from director Steve McQueen, co-writer as well with Gillian Flynn. And this movie stars Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, and Cynthia Erivo, amongst a bevy of other performers. And here is the trailer. You have no idea, do you? Or did you choose not to know? Your husband stole $2 million from me. This is about my life. This is about my life. And because it's about my life, it now becomes about yours.
Morgan, your family's been involved in Harry's life for many years. I need help. I don't see what I can do. All right. That is the trailer for Widows, a film based off of a UK television series by Linda LaPlante that has had many sequels and other iterations. Um, is it safe to say that none of us have seen the original? I have not, no. It is safe to say that. Okay. So <laughs> but this be... Linda LaPlante Linda also gave us Prime Suspect, which is another famous, legendary UK show, crime show from the 90s. Yeah. Starring Dame Helen Mirren. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. So we are here today just to talk about this newest version of Widows, which again stars just everyone. And um, this is a movie about a number of women who, after their thief husbands are killed in a botched heist, must band together in order to pull off the final heist that their husbands were planning in order to pay off the gangster who they had previously robbed. So basically, the widows have to take up the mail of their husbands in order to cover for their husband's massive fuck-up. I'm gonna... Uh, I'm gonna start off by saying this. I loved this movie so much. Ooh. Oh, I feel wow. like... Brian jumping the fucking gun. I'm jumping the gun, and this is why. Because... Just break all the rules. I know that there are people on this podcast who maybe possibly didn't have as emphatic a positive reaction as I did to this movie. And so I'm going to say I loved this movie so much and had so much pure unadulterated fun with this movie that I will attempt today in all of my like comebacks and refutations to keep a glowingly positive attitude rather than my usual anger and disbelief. <laughs> I am going to channel the joy that this movie gave me and I guess the encroaching holiday season in order to try to only respond in uplifting and positive ways. And we'll see how long that lasts. So I feel like you're just trying to bait me into being more of an <laughs> asshole than usual. <laughs> Look, I mean like This you know, seems like a trap. <laughs> this might not this isn't the first time, again, that like we've seen a heist movie. And, you know, I'm sure that some people are going to remember the Triple Nine episode when mm. I basically had a meltdown because some people had asinine issues with the movie that I didn't understand, <laughs> um, possibly related to one of the characters and how they got shot. Anyway, what I'm saying is like a punk, I am I am going to attempt to simply allow moments like that to slide over me. And instead of <laughs> berating yelling and cursing at people to simply channel the joy and try to oh. use that as an infectious way to either change hearts and minds or at least make people understand where I'm coming from. So, you know, I guess spoiler alert for my opinion in this movie, loved it. Fantastic. Absolutely great. Go see it. So nutshell reviews from all of us. Let's start with our guest. Damn our it. guest. Our uh, guest. Look at Bill's like guest. It ain't no guest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> just because he's here often and is technically a member of the family doesn't mean he's not a guest. He's one of the starting, like, founding members of the I'm Talking still guesting. This ain't, this ain't my pod. I got, I got a whole nother pod, dude. The B yeah, side. he's got the B side. We've got the A side, also known as the film stage show. Oh, oh no, it's true. It's true. Um, so, yeah, I, I, uh, I very much enjoyed this film. Um, Wait, so would this be Mecca's B sides or would this be his A side? This would be, I guess my A sides are the B sides, so this would be my B side. No, right now he's a featured <laughs> artist on our A side. Oh, but no, kill me. <laughs> but, well, and, and actually, speaking of the B side, which is the other pod, you know, the kind of side podcast that is on the same feed as 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 the film stage show. There are a lot of actors and actresses in this movie that warrant a b-side oh, episode uh -huh. michelle rodriguez oh yeah. yeah i mean i mean everybody really i mean viola davis michelle rodriguez you know some obviously like your john bernthal's and your elizabeth debeckys and your cynthia revos are still kind of producing you know they're still making their own stardom as it were but colin farrell is someone who oh, i'm constantly yeah. trying to you know any excuse to talk about about <laughs> miami vice and why it's a masterpiece have you already done just, a b-side for him no, no, but we need to. Yeah. Um, I call it. Can I call yeah. it? I'm calling call it. Call it. I'm calling it. I want to talk about Tigerland. I want to talk about the recruit. I want to talk you about slot. You have to slam your desk if you're going to call it. I am calling it. Yeah, okay, I hear it. The recruit is a, a movie that I've seen many times. <laughs> Al Pacino is in it. What is that? Al Pacino's oh, in it. Michelle crazy. Michelle Monahan. No, no, Bridget Monahan, dude. Bridget. Sorry, wrong one. Anyway, Widows. I really enjoyed it. I so I you know I Stephen Queen I like as a filmmaker. I loved um, Hunger when I was in film school. I was at a point where I was kind of like doing that thing that I think a lot of whatever creative people do, where you're like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? This am I good at this? What have you? And I saw Hunger, and I had that fleeting but also inspiring thing that I think everybody also can relate to, where I watched that movie and I thought I have to keep doing this stuff because I love movies so much and also thought I'll never be able to make anything as formally brilliant as this movie. So ever since Hunger, which is about 10 years ago now, it's had a, you know, he has been a filmmaker who has been in, in, you know, important to me for that movie alone. You know what I mean? Just for that experience I had alone, which I, I can only, I can only claim to a few a few movies, honestly, an experience like that. Um, shame, uh, I enjoyed, but I had some problems with the sexual politics and what have you. Uh, this is not a podcast about shame, so I will leave it there. But and Twelve Years a Slave, I think, is obviously a, a very impressive movie, though it's interesting how it's kind of faded from my memory for how, for whatever that means, not my memory, but it's not a movie. I suppose you would revisit, uh, willingly, uh, a whole lot. So I like that he's jumping full into genre here. I think his sense of space and framing and himself as an, a director of actors is a, it's a, he has a peculiar way of the performances he get, out of people and I think that's mostly a compliment and all of those things put and melded into a essentially a heist caper um, along with some loftier uh, other intentions about the city of Chicago and what have you all work I, I, I did 
you know, it doesn't all work, but I think even when it doesn't work, it's working for me. Um, so I really enjoyed it. Yeah. All right. Michael Snydell. Yeah, I, I guess I should actually I, I should clarify a little bit my McQueen feelings instead of just uh, <laughs> playing this this role as the heel. Uh, you know, McQueen is is one of these guys who in some ways it kind of like typifies uh, a, a tourism in a way. But in this bizarre middle ground where he doesn't. He doesn't necessarily like I don't think he is potentially as frustrating as, you know, some of the more uh, high or excuse me, not highbrow, like middlebrow people like, you know, Hooper or, you know, any number of these people who are doing Oscar bait things. And and I also don't find him quite as self-indulgent as someone like Inaritu, who I can say, like, out of the five films I've seen from him, I like one. Um I, and McQueen again kind of falls into that middle uh, middle point for me, I, in the sense that uh, so I really don't like shame. I don't think that the the formal approach works. I, I don't think that Fassbender's uh, performance works. I, and again, it's it's been a very long time, so I don't I don't I don't really have any you know uh, strong rant about it right now. But I guess I'll, I'll say then uh, 12 Years a Slave is, is a film that I don't – you know, it's it's interesting that Dan used the word impressive. Uh, that's often the word that I think about um, in terms of McQueen. Like I, I rarely find – I wouldn't ever go so far to say that uh, you know he's soulless or anything because I don't think that's fair. I think it's more I don't like the soul that is there. But, <laughs> but like – but I guess what I'll say about uh, 12 Years a Slave is that was a, a film that I feel almost no passion for. Like, I, I appreciate that he really brings together an incredible cast – or excuse me. Uh, just he brings together incredible actors. But I just very rarely feel that his um, – you know, strenuousness and almost the the punishing quality of his work, uh, it, it it very rarely um, works for me in creating like some larger message or in creating a better experience for me. And so, Widows is probably is certainly um, it, it's not a shame situation for me, but it is something. Where I enjoyed it in fits and spurts, but the more that I talk about it uh, and the more that I think about it, the more I find it a little more frustrating. I, I'm fine with, um, you know, th- this movie's taken a big swing. Like I was thinking about this, uh, uh, talking to my partner the other day, like there are about eight main characters in this film. And that's before you get into, you know, interesting, uh, supporting, uh, supporting actors, you know, who, you know, whether they're just adding color or who have main narrative function. And, um, you know, on some level, I want to say that I appreciate that this swings so hard, 
but I, but then again, I also do think that so much of the larger social issue stuff, whether, you know, we're talking about police brutality, whether we're talking about, uh, corruption with aldermans and things like that, I, I just feel like it, it lacks an odd, or excuse me, it has an odd lack of imagination with specificity when it comes to a lot of those social issues. And as far as the general, the genre stuff, I, Mostly, mostly like that stuff. I, I think uh, Flynn and McQueen is a pretty awkward marriage of sensibilities, but I think sometimes it works. Like I think sometimes that Artur Sheen works in nice ways. Like there's, uh, for instance, I really like how he shoots people in cars. Uh, or I shouldn't say him. I guess it's Sean Bobbitt, who is the cinematographer on this. But I, I, I think that he makes a lot of choices that are very unique and interesting here. Um, but it, it's just huge parts of this just don't work for me. But I never really felt like my time was being wasted. And I don't – you know, I, I, was wor- I was very worried about this film. And I didn't come out of it hating it at all. And I think there's a lot of – interesting stuff that I actually want to get into in spoilers. Um, But I I really just think this is very okay, though. All right. Bill Graham. I really enjoyed this film. Um, I think there are some sequences in this film that are just going to stick with me probably forever. Um, And I know that's probably a little cliche to say, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Um, especially the sequence with the car ride between uh, the 18th ward, the low, I guess the lower ward, and then I guess the edge of the ward. Uh, I won't go into detail right now about that um, because that sequence is is amazing, and you just got to see it to to see what happens there. Um, I think there's a lot of things going on here where it, this film is such a a page turner in so many ways and it just kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat i was expecting a lot of things from this movie coming in having seen multiple trailers having seen a lot of you know kind of hype for it and knowing that he had kind of done extensive test audience screenings and and things like that um and yet this film still managed to surprise me in so many different ways, whether it was Daniel Kaluuya's brutality or just some of the ups and downs of this film and how it how it manages to keep mystery without frustrating you. Um, I think the central device that that kind of propels the film forward i think a lot of that is is still kind of in mystique for me and i'm not i'm glad that we're going to be able to talk about this because i was listening to another podcast about this film uh black men can't jump in hollywood is that is that what it's called i can't yeah black men can't jump in hollywood yeah and they were a little confused about like what was going on in this film and they made me even more confused so I'm I'm hoping that uh, Brian, as always, will will have things written out 
and uh, can explain them long form for me for for the simpleton that is that is Bill Graham. Well, I mean, um, Bill, here's a, here's a, here's some bad news for you. Uh, I never write anything out. Everything is mm-hmm. always from my my pure unadulterated memory. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, okay I saw this movie like two weeks ago. Oh, oh so well, I've I've got I got a lot of it stuck in there, but you know okay. this might be okay. the one time okay. that I let you down. Oof. You beautiful, oh, yeah. beautiful goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> um, that being said, I really enjoyed this film pretty much from start to finish. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really I really don't have a lot of things that I wish did or didn't happen. Um, the ending is a little little interesting. Um, it's, it's kind of a last little note of, of just like, huh? And then then it's out. And yeah, I, I just enjoyed this film from beginning to end. Um, the, the, I also want to quickly mention, I love that this film doesn't really have like a beautiful, like getting the gang together sequence. It's just like, it, it's, it's real crummy the way they put this, this team together. And it's just like, wow, y'all are putting this thing together with duct tape. This is this is wild. So, yeah, I enjoyed this film from beginning to end. Uh, I guess where I stand with uh, most of his films is uh, pretty pretty much thumbs up or two thumbs up. So, yeah, I haven't seen Hunger yet. That's I think that's the one film I haven't seen from him. Everything else I have. I mean, if if you haven't seen Hunger, there's only two other films you could have seen. Oh well, I mean, Shame and Twelve Years a Slave. I don't. He did a lot of shorts too. Like, I was true. just trying to find a couple. Um, yeah, so I have uh, loved everything that Steve McQueen has created. Um, I was, I was, I was not confused. I was curious when I found out that this was going to be his his newest thing because I was like, "Huh, Widows, interesting." I mean, that sounds like a movie I love. If there's if there's one thing that people on this podcast know about me, uh, it's that I love a heist movie. Um. I was gonna say you, you love women who've lost their lost their husbands. You love widows. Oh my right? god, you're, widows! You're, you love you love widows. Me and widows wow. go together like peas and carrots. Um, <laughs> yeah, if I if I <laughs> if I know a woman is recently bereaved, I'm just like totally on board. Uh, That's always the first thing I think of with Brian Rohn. I'm always like, dude, that guy loves widows. Guys love not in like. <laughs> I need to keep my into. mom away from you. Apparently. <laughs> uh, Oh, Jesus. First of all, <laughs> I don't want to romance any widows. <laughs> I just empathize with their loss very deeply, and I like to try to help them through it through nothing but long conversation and yeah, understanding Michael's pats on the shoulder. Crude logic jump there. Crude yeah. logic jump on Michael. Anyway, um, <laughs> aside from my um, humanist love of widows, uh, yeah, I love a heist movie. Um, <laughs> just like I love con movies and westerns. And so I was totally on board and I was interested to see what he would do with this because this is not a man like David Fincher comes to mind. Like David Fincher has like a, a, a very defined aesthetic and he can apply it both to pot boilers, but also to movies with like a deeper sociological meaning. Uh, but, but when I hear David Fincher is doing, I don't know, uh, like the girl with the dragon tattoo. I'm like, okay, cool. He's, he's doing his like airport novel mode. Like he did with, you know, seven and alien alien three. Um, but you know, if I hear he's doing the social network, it's like, oh, okay. He's got something to say. So I was, I was Which wondering, still like, haven't seen. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Um, that's why I didn't see it. Cause I don't give a shit. Um, about what he has to say. I like him in airport mode. 
I haven't seen, seen a social network. I haven't. This every <laughs> time as confused as you, Dan. <laughs> Are you serious? No, I haven't seen the social. You're network. hosting a film podcast. And you <laughs> I don't know. This is okay. So this, okay, this continue. This we'll episode continue. is going to hit a lot of things. There's the you love triple nine, and then there's the you haven't seen the social network. You can love triple nine. I just, I mean, you haven't seen the social network. It got nominated for like ten Oscars. But those anyway. are two things that I say that seem to derail every single moment of my life. The moment that I say them, um, I can't even remember what I was going to say now. Oh, so Steve McQueen, I was like, it's going to be weird seeing this guy who's done a movie about the troubles um, and and dying for something you believe in and a, a movie about, uh, you know, the, the institution of slavery and its dehumanizing effects and a movie about sex addiction and to see him bring his considerable aesthetic talents to bear on uh, a heist movie. I should have known that there would be more to it than just a heist movie, uh, but I was pleasantly surprised when this movie really started taking some subtext and making it text in uh, mm-hmm. some really, really great ways. So um, hats off to you, Steve McQueen. I I loved this movie. I loved all the actors in this movie. I loved just about every moment of this movie. Did you, did you like Colin Farrell's accent? I mean, uh, yeah, you know, it was fine. <laughs> did you like Robert Duvall? I liked the the um. We'll, we'll have to talk about it when we get more into the plot. Can I? There is hey, Michael. a there is like Sorry. a there is a hatred in Robert Duvall for the character that he's playing that I think comes through in the writing. It's like the least subtle archetype ever, but I think given the world that we are living in, I am fine with that archetype not being subtle. And for Robert Duvall having as much of a ball hating himself playing this, like I think in a constructive way as possible. Yeah. So what I'll just say is um, I like from the, I was concerned because anytime I walk into a movie by someone who I've only loved their movies, I'm like, is this the one, is this the one where they fuck me over? And especially because I kept saying to everyone who would listen, widows is my most anticipated film of the year. I want to see widows. I can't imagine not loving widows. But I was scared, guys. I was real scared. But then that opening, that opening mm. scene where it's like a bunch yeah. of morning routines, and then the sound. Oh, I, I thought you were talking about the the makeout sesh, the the open mouth, like just full <laughs> on makeout. The commuter did that. Lots of tongue. No, no. Okay, so the commuter did like a year in the life of this no, guy. I, I know. By, yeah, but in this, real. it was this very <laughs> subtle aural shifting because like the sound of someone pouring coffee would suddenly transmogrify into the sound of like tires squealing like it was i was just like okay great this is exactly what i want it to be this is some hard-boiled crime nonsense and i've got steve mcqueen at the helm i'm in a good place and just in terms of like audience participation which is something that I've brought up a couple times that like I'll watch a Marvel film and people will feel like super disengaged and it will really feel like, you know, when you're at like a restaurant and people are like, oh, you have to try this. Oh, you got to try this. Oh, this just chicken. Oh, it's so juicy. And this bisque I've never tasted. But like when you see a Marvel film, it's like you and a bunch of hungover friends hanging out at McDonald's just trying to get something in you that will take you to the next moment of your life where maybe you won't feel as bad. And you're just quiet and you're not making eye contact. And when it's over, you just shuffle out silently. And this movie 
is like a my my theater was like a rowdy Italian restaurant. It was just nothing but like clapping and cheering and gasping. And I've never, I can't remember the last time I was in a movie where people were just so engaged and so on board. And it was a critic screening. Critics are notoriously hateful towards a movie when they're watching it. Like I have been in critic screenings where critics are openly mocking a film, but like both the critics and the general public who I guess like got in for GoFobo or something were just like rowdy as fuck. And it was awesome. And it was infectious. And um, so that's why I was saying uh, instead of my usual thing where I get mad at people for not appreciating the things that I appreciate, I'm just going to appreciate them harder in your face. (laughs) Ew. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is a great movie. I loved it. I loved the social commentary. I loved the um, the actors. I like Daniel Kaluuya in this movie, uh, whose character name is like Jatem, but it should be Crazy Eyes. And <laughs> like it, it's just so he like. There's so many good bit parts. There's so many good nonsensical things. Elizabeth Debicki, a towering just monument of a woman has some of the like best parts in this film and like i just want to like go through each one of them one by one viola davis carries a dog like no one on earth has ever carried a dog same dog that was in game night yeah was it (laughs) is that the game night dog the game night dog blood dog michelle rodriguez does her michelle rodriguez thing in this which is which is great um and just yeah, like there's just so much there's so much great stuff in this and like so many people who are just like having a ball. And again, like, you know, uh, we talked about um, Cynthia Revo was like standout stellar performance of Bad Times at the El Royale. And uh, I think you and I, Dan, both were like, can't wait. Can't wait to see what she does next. Holy crap. So happy Widows is coming out. And I think yep. she delivers. I think that like, you know, she and this is not a spoiler. It's just that she's not one of the widows. She's like a random person who gets drawn in and she's just so good. Like she's just got such physicality to her. Like she just like, she wears a hooded sweatshirt like crazy in this movie. And I just like loved every second with her. And, um, yeah, I don't know, man, this, this friggin' movie. I just like, I think that this is probably like the most, the most fun that I've had at a movie. And like, aside from bad times, of the Oreal, the only time that I walked out of a movie this year and said, I could walk right back into the theater and see it again immediately. It's got that Arivo touch, dude. Yeah, man. <laughs> that Arivo um, touch. Michael, can I ask you, uh, Colin Farrell's accent as somebody who lives in Chicago? Uh, what, what do we think? It's it's pretty bad. Sometimes it sounds like Come Wisconsin. Come on, Michael. I was, you were supposed to say it was great. We're talking about no. It sounds like Wisconsin. Way we're talking more. about Colin Farrell, our greatest living actor. What are you doing? I, I Come love on, Colin Farrell, the, the star of the recruit. Michael, show some respect. <laughs> Future B side subject, Colin Farrell. For God's sake, the star Alex of the remake himself. of Total Recall, Alexander the Great himself. Okay. Yes. Anyway, okay, that's interesting. So you thought that it was a subpar attempt at a Chicago accent? No, no. I mean, no. how can you tell? Not once did he say De Bears. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's, it's, it's funny because having just recently been in Chicago, I was like, I was like, oh, look, I recognize like all of these landmarks. <laughs> 
yeah, this must be how people like I, I always think that when I see like a movie that takes place in DC or New York or like, you know, the one movie that's taken place in Baltimore. Um, well, yeah, I, do so, think, I, I do just speaking to Chicago, I, I do think, I mean, it is interesting, right? How McQueen does this a little bit, right? Where he famously filmed shame in New York because he was going to film it in London, but when he went to location scout and kind of dig into sexual addiction and whatnot, he found London to be a bit of a prudish town comparatively. Mm-hmm. And so in interviews, he said that's why they changed the to New York for that purpose, basically. It never sleeps, baby. And so, you know, he has this thing that I think is pretty interesting, at least in two of his four movies, where he's exploring pretty in-depth American cities, you know, really the first and second city of the United States. I mean, quite literally, mm-hmm. um, with an outsider's eye, but but pretty in depth. So I do think it's worth kind of thinking about. And obviously, it's definitely a movie that's clearly determined to be a movie that's exploring the city that it's set in. You know, so for me, who I've been to Chicago only a few times, and you know, love it for what it is, but don't really know it that well. It felt you know, interesting and fascinating in its own way. But it, it is interesting that, you know, you know, since Michael, you live there, I was just like, what did you, how did it, how did it uh, ring for you overall? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it certainly was, I, I did feel, you know, a, a swell of, a swell of pride a little bit, like being able to actually recognize things like, you know, I, I'm not sure if they completely filmed in Chicago, but I, I will tell you that there are a lot of Chicago landmarks th- throughout this. The CTA is like part of the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 18th Ward is – I'm not quite sure what analog it is. I mean like going to the actual 18th Ward of Chicago, it's you know kind of the southwest part of the city. And I'm not sure it totally tracks about Mulligan's house being on the edge there. And I just want to say as an inside Chicago thing a little bit, they have a uh, a lock and key group come that's called the Lakeview Lock and Key. And I want to say that Lakeview is super far away from where the 18th Ward potentially is. But like... Well, it's a security company. Really, and um, sure, it, but I it can't appears... Imagine that's- I mean, I would assume that, like, if I don't know, I don't know if it's this an is gonna... hour. It's it's like it's it's thirty to forty five minutes in a car. But wouldn't the assumption be that's like what the rich people call the other rich people, right? Type thing. I was gonna say it's like if I'm if I'm moving into a bad neighborhood, quote unquote, I am going to call for the people that create the security systems for the people in the good neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think, so, but it's still yeah. it was still this this odd thing, and and you know, like so, or maybe I, it's I a really, franchise, like how there's a Georgetown cupcake, but it's in Bethesda. The Mulligans are like very clearly based on the dailies, which you know, I, I I don't know, I or I don't know if they're if McQueen specifically based on that, but like just in terms of the the conversations about nepotism, the um. <laughs> the accusations of corruption and maybe some of the specific details of the corruption and maybe some some questions about racism are things that have dogged the dailies until you know they um it, it switched from the dailies to uh sorry not Ronner um sorry this most previous 
the the mayor we have right now is the first time that we didn't have a daily for generations. Yeah, so Rahm, it, Rahm Emanuel. Right? Yes, thank you. Yeah. I literally couldn't remember his name. Yeah. He's, he's kind of an asshat too. Um, his brother's yeah. Ari Emanuel, a very powerful agent <laughs> in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like it, it was fascinating to definitely be aware that they were kind of playing with some Chicago legacies and some a lot of ideas about um, the nature of you know very different groups. You know, even if you just want to reduce it to the the wealthy and the poor, you know, coming into each other's communities and the way that deals with gerrymandering and stuff. And especially as someone who specifically for a short time, I was going into public affairs. So I um, like went to alderman's meetings and caps meetings. So I, I got relatively involved in understanding, you know, what a alderman even does on a day to day basis. So it, it was certainly fascinating to see those characters um, become a part of it. Uh Sorry, I don't know if that really answered your question, Dan. No, yeah, exactly. No, yeah. no. I, I mean, it's just good to have that. You know, having you on here, it's interesting to have that take. You know what I mean? Like the dailies and everything. I mean, that's. I mean, what does what does an alderman do? I mean, I guess the movie kind of goes into it a bit, but you know, I think it was interesting. I I, I did find it fascinating that the movies. You know, it, it, you know, it's about a ward. You know what I mean? And an alderman sure. in a city, and the fact that. I think sometimes what gets lost in a lot of studio movies, especially when mm-hmm. you're talking about this genre world that we're living in here, is that, you know, in a lot of movies, you know, I, I just was recently rewatching Murder at 1600 with mm-hmm. my wife. It was a Snipes movie. And um, yeah, right. Do you see you know, baby? In that movie? In that movie, like a lot of movies, and including, I mean, all joking aside, a movie like The Recruit, right, which is another studio movie. It's always sure. like the head of the CIA, the head trainer of the CIA. The president, the national security advisor. Or like this we're, goes we're, all the way to the mayor's house, you know? Like yeah, that's as low as it gets, is sometimes I, it's just yeah. the mayor. I liked that it was an alderman because when you're reading the New York Times or the Chicago Sun Times or the Tribune or whatever it is, sure. The corruption that really disenfranchises the people that were ta- you know are on the fringes of this movie to some degree mm-hmm. are people like aldermen's people who you know, only 30% of the electric votes for them because nobody even gives a shit, right? right like, like, I have friends yeah. who live in D.C. and I'm I would probably, love to be like, who's your alderman? Less. Like, yeah. Who, yeah. No, and no. they probably wouldn't Fuck know. No. Well, and that's how, and that's how families yeah, like sure. the Wait, I, I, and, and the Mulligans, that's how they, they, you know, if, if you get in with the, I'm sorry, hit the mic there. If you get in with the unions, right, and what have mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. that's how you're around forever and ever. And I think one of the most interesting parts of the movie is the idea that you have these factions, basically, you know, ones like we mentioned, ones an up and coming faction, Brian Tyree Henry and Daniel Kaluuya, and they're kind of they're these gangsters who come from and are from that ward to some degree, and their their ambition is to just take hold of the corruption that these white men who have used you know have always taken that power away from them in their ward have taken so there's no altruistic ambition it it's truly no, just sure. a power grab which i found and it they're aldermans you know i just found sure. that whole and, element and, and it's it, it's also fascinating that he <laughs> like there's there's an interesting conversation to be had about uh, about him being an outsider uh the, the director 
and, you know, especially to America and things like that. Not that our politics are necessarily all that hard to, you know, like study and, and learn and then and then just disagree. <laughs> I was about you to know, say. I, mean, I, I think I think I think the actual politics of the politics are hard to understand, but I think what an alderman does or what some of these other people do is probably a little bit easier, especially like what Mecca is saying is like, this is a, a, a step stone to corruption that a lot of people just aren't even aware of. And so I enjoy the fact that they, they decided to focus on that as the subject matter because it's like, it would stretch the imagination if this guy was running for governor or mayor or something like that. But it's like, oh, an alderman. I don't even know what the fuck an alderman does. And it's like, yeah, someone off the street could definitely, with some some you know decent money, could definitely start running a campaign and potentially oust someone that actually has a name. Well, it's funny. I was going to say like the only other movie I can think of that maybe even ever says the word alderman is uh, head of state with Chris Rock. <laughs> oh, Jesus, wow. Nice okay. pull, Brian. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, in that movie, he is an alderman. Yeah. Underrated until, movie, though. That, until he becomes head of state. That's an under, yeah, that's a movie that's yeah, underrated for that. almost like weirdly similar. You know, it's a comedy, but that's, you know, a Chris Rock movie where he's an alderman and it's kind of like almost like a – you know what? It's like the candidate, right? It's almost yeah. like Chris Rock doing the candidate to some degree, right? right or like more. man of the year or something uh, or like Dave. Yeah. It's just like, what if this normal person became the head of state? Yeah, Isn't there but, a gag about the roof is on fire in that? I, am I thinking of the right movie? It might be down to earth. Oh, it might be down to earth. You might, be, <laughs> might be one of them. I one know of the it's a Chris Rock, Rock movie. <laughs> yeah. But um, I do. I So I just to ensure that I was right, I did look this up. Um, and I will say that that movie has a poster and the tagline is the only thing white is the house <laughs> also apparently this is the directorial debut of chris rock so how about that good filmmaker yeah can i, I can i can i say some so I, i'm not gonna get into any specifics but but i will say here you know maybe brian i'm feeling a little bit what you're feeling a lot when you see dc or baltimore in you know anything and and you know it Dan, I, I think you are right that like it, it does need to be taken into account that this is a studio film. You know, like when I think of uh, things that I really like how they presented Chicago, like Princess Sid is the most recent example that really comes to me because Cohen, I think, is someone who really understands uh, especially a certain suburban part of Chicago. But like uh, the thing about Widows uh, to me is that, you know, it at once – is taking a smattering of those very specific things, you know, things like aldermen or, you know, things like the characters being, uh, you know, uh, an alderman candidate and, um, you know, that, uh, you know, a church congregation or excuse me, a church and its congregation is a, a big part of who will win. Like, like just the, the way that it uses details is just odd to me because then that's just in contrast with a lot of these kind of clumsy capital, capital letter ideas, like the ways, for instance, this film tries to talk about, uh, talk about violence 
or uh, and, and I mean that I, I mean that specifically in relation to uh, Chicago shootings and in relation to how different communities interact with each other like that stuff I found so clumsy and yeah I, I know you all are gonna disagree with me here but like a lot of it reminded me of season five of the wire like that's that's the level that I felt when it came to a lot of this commentary is that it was working like it was only um, it was dabbling with these ideas rather than digging into them with any meaningful way. And and then that and then it was just like these characters then were so cartoonish and didn't get enough screen time in in general. So I I, I guess now I'm getting into things that need to actually talk about specifics here. But um Well no, I I, just, I, I, I I don't know what to to I don't know uh how much of my own experience and my own perception I need to take this out is of. So weird because like we have talked about Absolutely. Many, many, many movies that take place in D.C. and New York. And I've never been like, oh, you know, uh, because There's I've been... lived there, because I know it. It's just uh, like, oh, uh, man, I just well, don't but know. It's, but it's funny because what I what I, I, I remember the thing I liked the most about Shame and I was living in New York at the time, uh, you know, when the movie came out or, or, or right after or whatever. What I liked about Shame was because he was an outsider, it felt like he was capturing New York, you mm-hmm. know. 2008 2010 whatever new york in a way that was um antithetical to a lot of the ways a lot of new york movies try to capture it where it's either like sure rom-com new york or kind of new york has still got an edge new york right the way that (laughs) steve mcqueen captured new york in shame was what i experienced which was you know a cool place where there was a lot of bullshit, but there was a lot of also nice things. You know what I mean? Like your care, your characters living well in this city, but beneath the veneer was this also element that has always been there of, you know, whatever sin and, you know, just what have you. Right. So that, that was interesting. And I can't obviously speak to Chicago in the same way, but I will say to the Wire season five comment, I think you're totally right. I think it's a lot like the Wire season five. I just think it's a matter of, you know, how much do you like the Wire season five, right? It's not as good as the first four seasons. It's a little bit more on the nose. I still very much enjoy it. I think that's where Steve McQueen operates. I mean, the guy's operatic, right? I mean, I don't think if you watch any of his movies, including Hunger, you know, the dude does not pull punches, right? Subtlety is not the thing that, that he's waking up in the morning trying to achieve. So I think, you know, when he's making a heist movie with a political, you know, wraparound, this is, of course, like when I was watching this movie, and I think Brian basically said this, right? And you love McQueen, Brian, so it makes sense. Every moment that happened, you know, you know, you know, we talking about the sh- you know shootings, whatever, you know, without going to details exactly. Every moment that happened, I thought to myself, yes, of course, this is this is the way that McQueen would go. I mean, he's got this auteur thing. And like you were saying, Brian, I wasn't expecting the political stuff really when I saw the trailer and, and, and everything. But when it was happening, I was like, of course. And I and I enjoyed it, but I could also understand a world where, you know, 
you know, there's a little bit of water in the beer. You're kind of like, okay, all right, all right, all right. What are we doing here? So I think the season five wires is a really kind of a smart comparison, actually. Well, my my other thing about like just saying like, oh, these characters are cartoonish is like, well, fuck yeah. Like, here's the thing. Like when you're when you're making a movie like this, that is a crime film that is also trying to say some things about like society and economics and classism and stuff like that. Like you're going to amplify them a bit because this isn't, I don't even, I'm trying to think of like the world's worst example of like a movie that goes for like extreme realism and something like this. But you know, this isn't show me a hero, a, a, a TV show that I loved that like is, is honestly stunningly great. This is, a crime movie that is grafting some of this other stuff on. And so to like, to meet the heightened reality of a bunch of widows knocking over a place, you kind of got to meet it with some like cartoon characters with some genre characters. So you've got all these incredibly corrupt people because it, it just fits. It fits better. I feel in the genre mode to have people who are a little cartoonish, like I, this is one of those things where it's like, maybe I just don't know enough, like, overtly racist people but like i don't know anyone who would get into a car with someone and then ask if they slept with a black guy ever like it just it's but it's like if you want to get that kind of stuff out you make a guy who is the kind of over-the-top jerk who would just ambush someone with that question and then use it use his racism as a lead-in into trying to make himself seem better because he's trying to like quote-unquote help these people like and I dig that. I kind of dig that stuff. I especially like it when that person is, you know, the mark for whom these people are going out for. Like it it just it all it all coheres to me because I understand that there is a level of unreality. Like season 5 of The Wire went a little off the rails because it hit that unreality, which in other TV shows would be fine, but The Wire had had previous seasons that were like very socially real like to the de- to the detriment of its ratings probably um but like I, I this think- this movie wasn't going for that this movie wanted to be like a little rollicking a little rock'em sock'em i don't think that people would cheer and whistle and like fuck yeah the screen of a movie that was trying to be totally socially real and i don't think that it's necessarily the job of a movie to perfectly represent a city I, of course not no it, it's not i i mean i I'm going to say up front, I strongly disagree with you about season five of The Wire. I think it's a pretty bad season of television. But let me put it – let me <laughs> contact – let me say that, you know, the boldness and bigness that you're speaking about, you're saying it is certainly characteristic of McQueen. And, and I think you guys are right, but I think that I don't find then a uh, – you know, a subversiveness that comes along with that, you know, like I, I think, I, I think that's been my problem, you know, throughout uh, McQueen's films, even the ones that, well, I, I should say the few that I've seen, you know, even the one that I felt was impressive, you know, it was <sighs> this, this one especially is, is a film that like, course i don't need it to be socially realist and i'm fine with something that has a certain level of unreality to it but this film actually also wants you to take all of this stuff very seriously by virtue of like making a number of these characters emotional moments about 
these social realist things, but still handle or, and still approaching them with unreality. Like I can't, I can't deal with that divergence. Like it doesn't doesn't work for me. Like and that works in something in other Gillian Flynn things. You know that archness has been there. Whether you want to talk about Gone Girl, whether you want to talk about Sharp Objects. But that archness is then used in relation with the the social reality, but also the scenes you're talking about where Colin Farrell asks his, you know, uh, his aide uh, whether she's been with the black guy. Like that, that wasn't funny. That wasn't interesting to me. Like that stuff is all throughout this movie. And I didn't find that entertaining, like with characters like Duvall and Colin Farrell. But then also the emotional moments are, are, are also require me to – I'm getting worked up. Sorry. I'm going to back off a little bit. <laughs> no, go for it. No, I'm, I'm trying to I, – I just – I don't think – I don't think it's quite fair to throw back in my face that like things don't need to be socially realistic because that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying I need this to be a Steve James documentary. I'm saying instead that if you are going to try to tackle all of these different things, like you can't have – like I I found a number of different – subplots in this and even just legitimate characters and their arcs half baked in here. And I want to, we'll have to talk specifically in spoilers about that, but like, that's where I'm at with this movie. Like I enjoy parts of it. I enjoyed the hell out of the heist. For instance, I enjoyed Mm. parts of the genre stuff, but anytime we're dealing with like more heady social issues, I just found this so clumsy and, and and just like it was biting off way more than it could chew, um, and and in some cases, uh, really flat. <laughs> well, I disagree with everything you just said. I, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know. I I like again. We don't have to. We've been talking for almost an hour, and I feel like we haven't even talked about the movie yet. No, um, we haven't. <laughs> no. Yeah. But that's fine. Around it, like break in here and be like, hey, let's talk about the movie. Well, that, that's the thing, though, is the movie is very tied in with all of its social commentary. And I think that, like, you know, this isn't 12 Years a Slave. This isn't shame. This isn't hunger. It's not an intimate portrait. It's a it's a sprawling crime genre exercise where everyone is culpable and everyone is dirty and it's just the levels. And so, you know, this movie begins <laughs> an hour into the podcast. We talk about how the movie begins. Um the movie begins, all the guys die, and the widows, you know, are, are there. You know, uh, um, what's his name? Brian Tyree Henry um, comes and threatens uh, Viola Davis's character and says, like, I want my money back. Give me my money. You have a month. And she, through some happenstance, finds a ledger where her husband had plotted out his next uh, heist. And she decides that she's going to get a couple of the other widows to do it with her so she can pay off the guy and then they can split the remaining, like, $3 million. And... And from then on, you, you, you're, you're meeting all these people and you're seeing the ways in which they have been screwed over. And so this almost becomes like a, a treatise on like collectivism as the only means to escape or otherwise subvert a system that is 
bent on bringing you down and making sure that you stay in your place. And I find that much in the same way that like a Western will have, hey, another one of my favorite genres, much in the same way that a Western will have a mustache twirling like cattle baron come in and say, if all you aren't out of town in two days, I'm going to murder every single one of you, uh, like Magnificent Seven. Um, Something that like no thinking human being would ever do. I don't have a problem with people in here amplifying the real issues that people would have to face in order for dramatic tension and for the desperados to come in and like save the day. Um, especially because in this case they're saving their own day. They're, they're pulling their own asses out of the fire and making sure that everyone else who would otherwise try to put a hand on them gets burned instead. And you know, in terms of like that working for me, it, it just worked 100%, man. I was just, on board through the whole movie cartoonishness and and craziness and everything just piled on top it was just like the cheese on top of the frito pie it was just great i don't know what to tell you you want a frito pie hmm you want a frito pie i don't mind it what that's the (laughs) thing though like i would you you i could be reading you wrong but you Especially in the build-up to this movie, you were, like, really concerned about Chicago. <laughs> it was like someone was making a movie about your best friend, and you were, like, no, I, I worried that since wire. your friend doesn't have movies made about him so often that this one is going to make him look real bad. And, like... Are you, Michael, you're talking about the IndieWire quote, that that misinformation? Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I saw early on, and I'm like, oh, god damn it. This is just going to be... A joy. I already knew that McQueen is someone I, you know, had a conflicted relationship with. I didn't think this uh, this looked good, and I, I, I knew. I, I, I'm not trying to say that. Like, I'm not trying to say that I went in with like ideas about this. Like, in fact, I think that we haven't even got into what I actually like about this movie, which I think that the interpersonal relationships and the ways that the women um, interact with their uh, with their widows and the ways they interact with each other, I think is absolutely the best stuff in this movie. I don't I really don't think almost any of the big social stuff works for me. Um, I, and again, like even when I speak about, you know the the main characters, here, I, I still only really think that two of them really have a, a good arc. I think Elizabeth Debicki is given enough screen time to be able to create a character, and I think that uh, Cynthia Ed- Evero is it Arivo, Arivo, baby, Arivo, isn't it E V R I O? No, it's E R I V O. That makes more sense. Okay, and uh, Viola Davis, I think, is is doing her thing, but it is also, I, I didn't, I don't, I don't know. Like uh, the, the ways that she was supposed to be, you know, coping with trauma and stuff and the, and the ways that revolves around the twist. We, we, we haven't talked about the twist. And we haven't <laughs> talked about literally we, any of the plot. We, why don't we <laughs> jump into spoilers? We I can mean, do that. Spoilers right now. No, <laughs> let's just jump into spoilers. Let's do it. Holy shit. Michael, you're so confused. Well, we've been you know, we on this episode, you know, we we jumped in with our thoughts and then just kind of immediately jumped to 
I don't even explain the plot. People, I don't even one hundred percent know what we are arguing for or against at this point. It re- like uh, so. No, I don't know. Pretty, we guys are talking like it's complicated. about. Them. It seems pretty clear to me. I mean, we're having a good conversation about you know, you know. I think Michael enjoyed the genre aspects, but the political aspects didn't really work for him. And I think me, you, and Bill are all kind of in agreement that there's a lot going on that we really dig. I think you know the people who are listening, they know. They know the plot of the movie generally, and you know. What's, yeah, uh, I, and I hope that they're having an easier time following this than I am as an active member of this conversation. Because <laughs> every now and then I'm just like, "How are we back to talking about this?" I like, know and, that me and my Arivo heads are fully engaged. The Arivo totally heads want to hear about Cynthia Arivo being a badass and being the only person who's like actively standing up to Viola Davis. Um, yeah, yeah. And, she, and she swole. What the uh, hell? Like I said, man, she 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 wears that jogging gear and that hooded sweatshirt. Like, and I, like I, s- I didn't I didn't know because I just saw her in Bad totally times. different performance. Yeah, 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 but but like she ain't showing off those guns in that film. No, no yeah. She and like, I believe she's playing Harriet Tubman. I believe that's her she is. big role. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. She um like she could be five five or something. Like she could be a full foot shorter than me, and I still believe that she would win in a fight. <laughs> like. Just in this movie, she looks incredible. But so, um, yeah, I guess we let's uh, let's let's go into spoilers and and talk about the plot a little bit. <laughs> How could you think we were in spoilers, all right, Michael? Go. All right, all right, just go, please. We're in spoilers. Liam Neeson is still alive. Yes. Whoa. Boo. <laughs> yes. Um. So I, I just it. gotta I say. That was a big gasp gasp moment for my audience because, like, the dog has already like sniffed at his jacket and is like obviously excited because it's like, oh boy, here's my owner. And when that fucking dog started barking at that door in Carrie Coon's house, yes, Carrie Coon is in this movie, um, Mm -hmm. her second Gillian Flynn movie. uh, Right, that's right. Wow, just like she played Go too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she. Yeah, when that dog started barking, the people in my audience were just like, <gasps> and you could have like f- fucking dropped a pin and someone would have shushed you from across the room. I, I didn't know what to take from that sequence because I was so confused. And then they like, flat- confused? hold on. No, hold no, on. I, I agree. Hold on. I thought it was like his jacket or something. Yeah, I thought it was his jacket. And, and it was sad. funny because because they, they talk about it on the podcast that I was listening to today. And she was talking about how the way that Steve McQueen like frames that sequence. You don't know what the fuck is like that door. You don't know it. Like you, you don't know what that building kind of is. And so you're just looking at that door. No, no, no. I, I disagree 100% with everything you just said. Um, and I will, and I will joyfully explain to you why. (laughs) Jesus Christ. No, that's Um, what was so, okay. So this is my thing. Like, this is what's so fucking genius about this movie. This is why this movie like had me on the edge of my seat because you rarely get a genre exercise. (laughs) This Bill's just like politely like waiting, just like, okay. But what I'm saying is like this, this, this plays into like my door. (laughs) This plays into my whole thing about like how this is Steve McQueen bringing like what he does best to this genre movie. Like, in that scene, you've already set up the dog. Um, you got Carrie Coon acting sketchy, and then the dog runs over to the door and starts barking. And so you're thinking to yourself, is it just because it smells like him? But why would it smell like him? Like, how often was he possibly over at this house? And then she walks over to see what her dog is doing, and then you see the flask. The flask that has also been set up. The flask that, 
like should have either been on his corpse or still in her house. And then at that point, she doesn't have to open the door because she already knows who's behind that door. And she doesn't have the power to even look at him in the eyes. But then at the end of the movie, she shoots him to death. Like, that's her journey. Like, that's her getting her power. And that's the kind of, like, delicate, not delicate, but, like, visual storytelling that Steve McQueen brings to something like this. Like, it's not 100% underlined with her, like, saying, like, oh, my God, Harry was behind that door. Like, no, you just know because you've seen the things and he's drawn enough attention that you should be able to put them together in your head. Well, to Bill's point, I think, if if I may, Bill, um, Mm -hmm. and I agree with you on this, I think what what he was saying is the editing is such, and I I think this speaks – to the Stephen McQueen's talents and his editor's talents as well, is that when I was watching it, when I saw the flask, what I turned to my wife and said is, Oh, he was having an affair with Carrie Coon. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the dog's barking at the door and I kind of, you see the flash, you see the, you see, and you hear the barking. And in my head, I was, I was thinking, okay, you know, the dog is recognizing this house as a place where the owner was, you know, Liam Neeson. OK, they're having an affair. And then there's a hard cut that breaks the wall into where Liam Neeson is, you know. So, yes, once you cut to Liam Neeson, you're like, oh, he's there. So to your point, there's a punctuated editing style that is very effective after kind of hinting at it for a minute. And then, you know, I think, look, for, for a lot of viewers who don't see, you know, 200 movies a year when Carrie Coon finally opens the door is when maybe some viewers are like, Oh, okay. Like it's not some artful, you know, Liam Neeson is somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. I think that's good filmmaking for all audiences. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's, that's that's how I took it. Like if you're, if you're you, Brian, you see the flask and you're like, Oh, he's there. But if you're, you know, if you're my wife, right. You know, when Carrie Coon (laughs) opens the door, She's like, oh, you know what I mean? We should so, have left earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think what's confusing about that for me only only initially is you can't tell if that's a door to a closet or if that's a door to a room. And when you find out it's a door to a room, you're like, oh, you son of a bitch. How would you make that angle to look like it would, could have been either one? Like you're just like what? How did how did you make that door look like it was a door to a a closet instead of a bedroom? Like I don't know. How do but, you how do you mean? Like how did he shoot the door that it made it seem like a closet? Because it's it I can see past that doorway into like the kitchen area, I'm pretty sure as it's, well. It's like in the kitchen area. Yeah, that's I don't know that many uh bedrooms that are right off a kitchen area, but also you know, I I live in a Michael, very small Michael apartment quickly, right now. <laughs> Michael, quickly explain all Chicago architecture to us. Right <laughs> I was about <laughs> to say I have I have seen so those kinds of apartments, and also earlier in that movie, yeah. you see a guy leave that room that is a bedroom directly into the kitchen. So I just want to jump in and talk about how how much I love that Colin mm-hmm. Farrell and Robert Duvall's family name is Mulligan. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is, <laughs> you know, and I guess that's that's where kind of where touch. I. That's where I land on this movie, right? You know, like, Michael, you were saying, you know, to your general point about (laughs) the stuff not working for you in that way. I do think perhaps McQueen's being a bit too dry overall, but I think he thinks there's a grin there, right? I mean, 
their names Mulligan. You know, sure. I think the whole Colin Farrell performance is very layered, which I deeply respected. But also, I think it's 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 towing a certain line, which I think Colin Farrell does very well. If you, even if you think about you know something like In Bruges, which is you know a bit more obviously leaning comedically, but I think it was very strategic the way that you know he was cast for that exact thing that he can that ambivalence he can deliver in a performance and of course that was very specific because in no world that i've ever known would robert duvall and colin farrell ever be related <laughs> but you know one guy has literally no hair and one guy has the fullest most beautiful head of hair i've ever seen well but. that's because robert duvall is like 12 seconds from dying at every moment that he is alive yeah. in this movie <laughs> I'm just saying my dad's bald and my hair's on its way out. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. You know, I think, you know, if, if usually if, it follows, usually it yeah. follows. Well, but no, actually your, your baldness comes from your mother's yeah, side. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, kind of yeah. not true. That's like, it's like kind of an urban myth, I think. But anyway. I don't know. Cause my dad, everyone in my dad's family still has their hair and I've got a bald spot in my hairline receding. And my grandfather had bald a goddamn brothers. cone over since the moment that I was alive. So me and you, Brian, bald brothers. Um, at some point but, we've just got to shave it all off. I uh, I do I do right, I, um, I do like that's right Bill yeah you're running it you're you're rocking it um I do really like Colin Farrell in the movie and I think his performance is almost a treatise on to, to, to you know uh, the movie right how much you, you you like that part of the movie because a lot hinges on that whole arc of his which is you know I found. You know, and look, I mean, you know, the white man in a movie about Chicago, you know, and a bunch of, you know, you know, women of color and what have you, you know, you know, kill me for saying this. But his 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 that performance, I think you haven't seen a lot of characters like that where he's obviously a Democrat. Right. But it's that thing mm-hmm. of I, I guess one of the things I thought was interesting, right? I, I remember having a conversation with um, this is a sh- weird name drop, but I was I was I was filming a a, uh, a spot, a, an interview with Billie Jean King, right, right after the election mm. in 2016. Mm. She's very outspoken, obviously, a very smart woman, mm-hmm. and we had a brief little convo about. Um, some Mike Pence had said something ignorant, what, what something like that, whatever, and we were talking <laughs> about that. And she asked me, she was like, what do you think it is? What do you think it is about these men? Uh, you know, about uh, why, why, why do they say these things, right? It was a little bit obviously more – she's smarter than my memory of that. But what I basically said is I think what people forget and I think what this movie kind of touches on, which I found interesting and Colin, Farrell, Colin Farrell's performance is the kind of linchpin of this, is I think what gets forgotten is that everybody who is living life is dealing with their own thing and in their world – their problems are, are a big deal, right? So I think when you think about, you know, and, and my, my point to, to when we were talking w- with Mike Pence is that for Mike Pence, the things that he cares about, which I vehemently disagree with, are very important to him. You know, he thinks babies are being murdered, right? So mm-hmm. that's a big deal to him, right? That I, I don't agree with that. For someone like Colin Farrell, he considers himself a tragic character, you know, someone who's not racist, who's intimidated by people like Jamal Manning, who's who's Brian Tyree Henry, uh, Brian Tyree Henry. And he's living as the hero of his own story. And, you know, 
the sins of his literal father haunt him, right? So I did like how the movies McQueen is clearly trying to explore in every one of its characters or most of its characters that element, right? Viola Davis is a is a black woman, right, who married a white guy who is a criminal and is disenfranchising a world, you know, that she's obviously sympathetic to. But she reaps the benefits and lives in a nice apartment outside of the place that she ends up, you know what I mean? Like she mm-hmm. ends up getting involved in. The trouble comes to her only after her white husband dies. You know, and it, and it goes down the line, right? Brian Tyree Henry is presented initially as somebody trying to come out, you know, uh, of, of, of where he's from and, and make better. But once the money's gone, he turns to a sociopath brother to get the stuff done. Right. So I like how, sure, but, but he's, he's also like, he's not altruistic either. Right. No, no, no like, but that's my point. My point yeah, is, sure. I liked how you have this, this world, you know, and, and yeah, look, it's ham fisted, no doubt about it. Right. I mean, it is, but I liked how it reminded me, you know, film noirs from the fifties and the forties and, and whatever that when you look back, they're lauded for this stuff, right? The Blue Dahlia, you know, is a crime, is a silly crime movie, but it's also sure. about PTSD. You know, so when you look back at it, it feels nuanced. And at the time, I think it was received as a little bit silly. So I always try, when I'm watching a movie like this, I do think that there is something almost like a Killing Them Softly, which I think came up recently as well. Mm-hmm. They're very like punching you in the face, mm-hmm. but I do think time and reflection uh, will lend a hand to its credence. Or, you know what I mean? Well, I, I think I think there's a lot of like smart things going on in these characters. Like whether it's like Cynthia Erivo's character, who basically tells uh, um, Michelle Rodriguez at one point, "I'd rather be making twelve dollars an hour than sitting on my butt," and you realize she's going to watch over a child. That's not hers while her child is being watched over her aunt. I don't know. I don't know who that woman is. Is that her supposed to be her mom? That's, that's her mom, I believe. Yeah. I think Whoa, so. that's way too young to be her mom, I think. But uh, it, that's neither here nor there. Either way, you just realize like, holy shit, this woman is hustling her ass off and is literally like going to turn her back on her own child to make a buck. And, I don't know and if it's don't... turning your back on your child if it's a family member watching them. That's like yeah. what a family is for. And like, yeah, but I feel like if you are never home when your child is home, you're kind of turning your back on your child. I feel like it. Th- there's, the but I have a I have a hard time with that because like we we when so <clears throat> my mother was talking about how when she was growing up and like everyone still lived in Queens and like, you know, your mom and your dad were like four blocks away. Like Mm. that was sort of like their job. It was like, you know, if you had children, the assumption was, you know, grandma and grandpa will look after them while your parents are off at work making money. Like, Mm -hmm. and that was, that was like what the point of a strong family was for was to be able to do that. And then like when people started like, leaving their hometowns and stuff and like going to new places that's when suddenly it's stuff like daycare and nannies and like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. if you if you talk to people about what's going wrong in this country every now and then you'll find someone who's like well the problem is that like 
people are leaving their children with strangers and like, you know, throwing them into a class of 20 at a daycare when they're like one year old. And so like these children have no attachments to their parents or their family. And so like, I think that, that saying that this woman who is clearly working to support her children and be able to provide them with a place is turning her back on them because she's leaving them with like, even if it is her aunt, her aunt or her, her grandmother, I think that's like a little bit harsh. Like she's clearly doing the best that she can. I was going to add that at the same time, she does have to make money to pay for an apartment, to pay for food, to do all of these things. So it is a, a tough position because you just see her literally come home and then immediately go right back out the door. And it's heartbreaking in that, like, that's what this woman basically has to do to make, like, she's not living a life of luxury. She's hopping on a fucking bus. Like, you know, it's, it is what it is. But but it wasn't an interesting though to you, Bill, though, that I felt like the way the performances were, were, were rendered, it seemed like Cynthia Revo's character, Belle, had more uh, more of a sense of self-worth and confidence than Colin Farrell, right? Like, I mean, that's oh, I absolutely. Think, oh, I yeah. think that's where the movie gets it right. You know what I'm saying? Going back to what I was saying before, I think that those things where you have like Elizabeth, Elizabeth Debicki, who is obviously the I, – I, the, I, there can't be an argument – the most dynamic of our characters in terms of her development, right? I mean mm-hmm. – Right. You're watching her gain that self-worth throughout the movie. And Viola Davis's sense, though she, though her character would never admit it, was so tied into Liam Neeson, her husband. Mm-hmm. She has to gain it herself in being a taskmaster, uh, taskmaster and, and, what, and whatnot. And I think right. – She wants to I don't earn know. it I, instead I thought, of – I thought there was cause... a lot. I thought there was a lot there. Because Viola Davis brings up the fact that, like, she doesn't even own the apartment they lived in. So, like, she has been the beneficiary of a lot of of a lot of things from him. And um, and so her thing is, like, she wants to now know that she maybe not, like, is earning it on her own, but could have earned it on her own. She wants to, like, prove to herself that she wasn't a passive passenger who, like, got stuff that she never would have gotten on her own. And Elizabeth Debicki wants to prove to herself that she doesn't need a man even one that she's like exploiting or in like a mutually beneficial relationship with in order to get it and that scene with her at the gun show is is just so awesome and that it's little girl really really good that it's little girl really, saying really you always said that a gun is a girl's yeah. best friend yeah and let's and let's just spend the next 30 minutes talking about no. lucas haas in this movie no lucas haas, <laughs> the pin himself Let's uh let's talk just real quick about well, I wanted, the dog. I, I wanted to I wanted to go uh, on about like Michelle Rodriguez is is someone who's like her husband her his yeah her husband's mom is like you're the reason that he's dead because he did all this stuff for you because like apparently he never told his mom that he was like a degenerate gambler and so mm-hmm. like she's the type of person who's getting actively destroyed by her husband so like every single person in this has a different level to which they are being they either have to move out from the shadow of their husband or remove the anchor that was their husband and erivo is an interesting counterpoint because she is a single mother who is you know amongst all these people probably the most capable and well-adjusted 
and and yeah her her just like taking that power and like going to the next level with these people is is pretty damn awesome bill you wanted to talk about the the dog yes okay the dog so i think and and i think dan agrees with me that the reason that she starts bringing her dog around because you don't see her dog at like the funeral. You don't see her dog at like other locations, but apparently she cannot help but take her dog fucking everywhere else from the point that Ty, uh, Tyree, Brandon, Tyree, what, what is his name? Brian Tyree, Tyree Henry, Brian Tyree Henry. Uh, when he threatens her, inside her own apartment, which is a fucking glorious scene. Great scene. Like how, how all of that happens where you just realize like, Oh yeah, he don't give a fuck. And he's just going to go ahead, enter her apartment and just like, yeah, I think, I think from that point on, she basically decides that she's just going to keep her dog with her. That way people can't threaten her dog. And, I'm I'm curious if if she loses her driver around that point too, um, because that Barry would Dylan obviously, <laughs> but yeah, uh, because that would that would definitely like make you want to just go ahead and fucking take your dog with you everywhere as well. Like you get that bear Super Bowl ring and you're just like, holy shit, whoever can wear this uh, is a big motherfucker. And well, that was his. That was I know, I know, yeah. and he dead now. So, uh, fuck this. I'm gonna keep my dog with me because that dog <laughs> ain't gonna do shit. Um, anyways, I think I think me and uh, Mecca see eye to eye on that point. Um, yeah, I think I think she's carrying it around as like a comfort thing. Like yeah. it's 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 the like last piece that she has, and she doesn't want her do- dog to get John wicked. Mm-hmm. So if you need a if you need an idea for the sequel for this, someone kills that dog mm-hmm. and she goes after them. Mm. Lest so, we forget, there was a sequel, uh, a miniseries sequel that came out. out. She gets out of jail after killing her husband. She gets out of jail. She, yeah, she goes yeah. to jail for nine years. In this movie, though, they all get away scot free. Yeah, I guess in this movie, yeah, let's, there's no let's implication talk about, that she's going to get caught, right? No, I, I think that the, that's not. The the ultimate machinations of this real quick and kind of run through. So there's $5 million that's missing from some kind of kickback system that basically hasn't been reported, right? Not a kickback system. Well, no, I think it's, it's basically, yeah, it's just that, right, Liam Neeson has the schematics of Colin Farrell, Jack Mulligan's campaign headquarters slash house right yeah. and, and he's got a vault and, and that vault is stuffed with, with five million dollars worth yeah, of and elizabeth uh, de becky starts having a relationship of some sort with lucas haas who's an architect yep who tells who finds out what the schematics go to which is the mulligan house and then it's just camp you know it's just uh, I, I took it to be like illegal campaign funds it's, right? no I mean, it's no. he is embezzled no that. it's an overage from from oh, uh, the right. cta i'm sorry i'm yeah. sorry that's he, right. he, from the green line expansion right, he right, has right. been black but not what not blackmailing what's that thing that you do he's been cooking the books he's been embezzling <laughs> that's right sorry he's been laundering that and that's his scandal that's the scandal that's going over his head yes. or yeah the hanging over his head because is, is people that. like an internal review says like 500 un, unaccounted yes. for overages and he's like i don't know what you're talking about there's not 500 million dollars or five million dollars in cash in my house mm-hmm. and then they steal and, it from and, him and they kill yes. his dad and then he and, wins but 
but Colin Farrell wants that money stolen, correct? No. God no. No, 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 no. He he no. He Liam Neeson is in cahoots with Colin Farrell for that initial two million. Sure. And and that's the Liam Neeson and Colin Farrell on they they have that scene on the boat where So he was gonna screw Colin Farrell over as well? Yes. Well, he's strong arming Colin Farrell, and Colin Farrell's rebuttal is, "I'm going to tell people you're a lie." Right? It's a kind of a tit for tat. That scene was—I thought that scene uh, was kind of weak, actually, because it didn't do a great job, in my opinion, of fully establishing the power structure there. I, it was right. kind of—you know—you get the surprise that Liam Neeson's alive, and then you get that boat scene, and I did feel like it was a bit—I I would bet that was. I would bet that scene got a lot of discussion in the editing room. It just felt like they settled for 70% of what should have been there type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, uh, Cause they didn't, they didn't want to over explain, but they wanted to still kind of keep some mystery, I guess. Yeah, I mean, but, this is but pure, they, pure, yeah. uh, guessing. Right. But I would, right, I yeah. would bet if, if McQueen w- would say the priority is, is the widows. Right. So it's, yeah. you have to make, the Liam Neeson, Colin Farrell, and a little bit wishy-washy. And if it serves the pace, I think that would be fine. Yeah, because like <laughs> you, you could almost say that you could re- just remove that entire scene and the movie wouldn't be altered yeah. too much. But you, the, that scene does let you know that Colin Farrell knows about the double cross and sure and everything. And um, I, yeah, and, and I love how into the he wins as well. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, because Colin Farrell's big thing, his character's big thing, is that he doesn't want to win. So I do love. That as a as a final fuck you from his father, he wins because his dad got killed. killed. I really, I thought that was a really nice touch. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I you yeah, know I, that it's kind of brilliant. I, I think the the other thing, you know, I, I I agree with you guys that I think that Farrell at least has shades here, but I think in terms of a lot of male characters in this film, I, I felt they were almost a little bit too easy like you know when it comes at least to uh you know you have elizabeth debecky's husband who's you know abusive but she is with him because you know he he has given her security and stuff and you know maybe she loves him as well but my point being that um like many of the the male characters in this I, I did find oddly like like this film was almost like stacking the deck in terms of like like even Liam Neeson is kind of uh, abusive and like I I didn't find I, I found his performance good but I, I didn't find his character abusive with his tongue no he's what you, what you he mean? smacks he smacks Viola Davis right at, right near the end when he is oh oh. You, <laughs> You mean when he's about to kill her? Are, are we really going to say that that's not abusive when he smacks? Well, he's not about to kill her in that moment. He yeah, smacks no, her. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 But but I, I mean, when you say he has been abusive, I was thinking you were talking about in the past and not his present when he's also yes about to kill her. So like, yeah. I mean, I guess. I guess that is an abusive situation, but I see that as more of a murderous situation. Less you didn't like you abusive. didn't think it pointed to a systemic thing. No. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I guess what I'll say instead of instead of focusing on specifically the smack of that situation, I, what I'll say instead is that I think the male characters in this film are um, are, are cartoonish to uh, to a fault without necessarily being very sympathetic. I agree with you, Dan. That there but are they is supposed a nice. To be? There, I, can I can I finish first? Yes. Yeah. I, I I agree with you, Dan. That there were there are little you know touches and you know touches that character as you're saying that for instance that uh, Jack Mulligan ends up the alderman even though he didn't want to at the end and like there are little touches of specificity or little details I should say that did add things for me. Um, and uh, earlier, I know you guys were talking about the, the dog. Like, that's my favorite detail, actually, about Viola Davis is that she carries around the dog. Like, it, I think it adds a lot to her performance. But, I, again, like, obviously this film is not about the men. But but in terms of, you know, Tom Mulligan, Jack Mulligan, Jamal Manning, Jatam Manning, I, I think all of those characters are a little bit easy like uh, despite them you know being somewhat in the background of this film like i didn't you know i like uh, i i believe dan you already characterized daniel kalua as kind of sociopathic and that was kind of the one that was kind of the one shade i got from him when it came to brian tyree henry i didn't even think he he got enough time on screen to really make a strong impression for me besides from maybe the one scene where he's in the church or, uh, or, or the, or the scene where he sees Viola Davis. But other than that, like, I don't know. I just found that a lot of these background characters that, uh, you know, are not the central thing. were all a little bit, a little bit too easy and, and just like a little bit too neat um, for how like relatively thorny everything is with the four women. Um, so maybe that's what I'm trying to say instead of just trying to point out like cartoonishness instead. I, I think I'm uh, sorry. I, I think I'm just trying to say that I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, what did you guys think specifically? Uh, so I, Brian, I think you're right that it's probably not worth talking about the men who passed, you know, Lucas Haas in his one scene. Or <laughs> He's got like, like three that. or four scenes, though. Oh, dude, you get a lot That's of Haas. The, I think Are you get a I, lot it's of It's weird to me. Yeah, he, you get a shit ton of Haas. You get a shit ton of Brian Tyree Henry, too. So, like, you say things like that, and it kind of blows my mind because, like, I'm thinking of Brian Tyree Henry and his first meeting with Colin Farrell then bleeds into his conversation with Jatem. Uh, played by Daniel Kaluuya, when he's like, when Kaluuya's like, we're making money hand over fist. Like, why are you drawing all this heat by being an alderman? And he's like, because, and this again plays into like the whole dynamics of the movie that's so great is that he's like, okay, I'm doing an illegal thing and I'm getting heat for it from the cops. I'm getting heat for the thieves. If I become an alderman like Mulligan is, I can do a bunch of illegal shit and they won't touch me because I'll be one of them and I'll have power and I can do stuff with that power that'll give us even more than money ever could. And then you see him well, having that conversation like, with the with the with the priests or the preacher and he he's the same thing. He's like 
you know, I'm trying to do, he, he seems to almost be torn between wanting to do the right thing, but also knowing that he's like mainly going for a power grab and like that conversation with the priest is great. I don't think he, how the is conversation, he ever trying to do the right thing? Like, I think that there is a part of him that believes that his community is legitimately better served by at least being led by a black man than by Mulligan. Like, and he talks about that and they talk about the shifting yeah. demographics and the fact that like the, the wards being redrawn has like given him this opportunity. But he also, you know, it, like it's, it's the same thing with Colin Farrell. Who's like, I'm helping minorities start businesses. Also, they're going to give me kickbacks, but like, and, and the sure. woman in the hair shop says the hair shop, like you can buy hair there in the beauty salon says like, I at least now get to believe that I own something and that is mm-hmm. better than not even being able to lie to myself. And so like Brian Tyree Henry is going to have the ability to do that. And the people who elect him will even more have the ability to believe that they are a participant in the system rather than a victim of it. And so like his, his moment with Viola Davis, after you've seen all of his other like politicking and stuff, when he's like threatening to strangle her dog to death in front of her. And he says like, you know, your husband stole his money from me and he's like, this is my life. Like there's like honest, earnest passion behind him because he wants this. And the reasons for it are are many and maybe even conflicting. But like this is a real make or break thing for him. He's not the type of guy who's doing this just because he needs to like get his cred back. Like this is a stepping stone for him and he needs it. And Kaluuya is a bit of a sociopath. Yeah. But he's also got some some interesting shades to him. I think like he a he's bit, a bit of a sociopath. Well, it's he's, weird because he's he fucking smart. Too. He takes a little too much. Yeah, like what Bill's saying, he takes almost like a little too much like pride in himself to be really a sociopath. Like I don't he gets know, a man. weird joy out of it. Like a like a sociopath. No, yeah, I don't know. Sociopaths I, I usually, in my mind, are like very dispassionate about what they're doing. <laughs> like he seems in, to in goddamn that, that, love that, what he's in, doing. <laughs> In that podcast, they compare him to Hannibal Lecter, and I think I think that's pretty fucking just like spot on. Like he he is diabolical. He likes playing with his food in a sense, right? He likes teasing these people, whether it's that sequence when he has those kids rap in front of him and is just like mad dogging the guy the whole time and then just pulls his gun out and shoots him in the face. And you're just like, what the fuck was all of that about? You know, and why is he doing it? Because he's playing with these guys. Like that's why he stabs that guy. Yeah, Yeah, that's why he stabs that fucker in in the legs after he establishes like, oh, this doesn't hurt, and he does it like three more times, and he's like, what is that? And I also think everything in this movie is an exercise of power, and it's people exercising their power over other people, and. And so, like, something that I had said on the Slack channel was, like, the whole thing with Viola Davis and and Liam Neeson and their son, who we haven't even talked about, um, is Viola Davis getting the power that, like, proximity and a relationship with a white man can get her in, in terms of both money and just, like, safety. But it kind of, like, circles back and, and destroys their marriage because... You can't like he can at any moment like walk away from her and them and still be a white man. But they have had a child together and that child is now like branded in this way, you know, through his skin color that society will never leave him alone. And Liam Neeson is not powerful enough or 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 good enough or strong enough 
to overcome that. And that's the reason why he like runs away or wants to run away with like a white woman who he has had another child with because he can't take that kind of that kind of world where like his whiteness can't protect people. I the people that are closest to him to say that he thinks his whiteness or, or that he's so bothered by his whiteness that he goes with Carrie Coon. They literally I don't know if it's I don't know if he looked at her and was like, ah, oh, finally, a safe white woman. But there no. is definitely a subtext there, at least, because it's, well, there's also text. I mean, Viol Davis says it to him. Yeah. And like, no, so, she but like, says it to him, but we don't know that that's why he goes with Carrie Coon. Again, no, I don't know. I don't know that that was a deciding factor. I mean, Carrie Coon's a gorgeous woman. So like, why wouldn't you if you could? But there is I, definitely I he is definitely opting for a path of least resistance that allows him more safety and less opportunity to be hurt. And like he thought that his whiteness would shield his entire family. And he just doesn't realize that you know the world isn't going to see his son as his, the son of a white man they're going to see him as just another black man and that gets him killed and like they have arguments about that and it shatters their marriage and he literally says i couldn't save us i had to save me and he couldn't save her because no matter what happens he now is more than ever like able to see her her blackness for for what it is which in this world in this movie and honestly probably you know to a lesser or at least like less intense in a narrative sense, like way in, in the real world, it's, it's a liability. It's, it's a thing that can get you killed for, for not responding to the cops fast enough. Which is just a terrible scene. That's just the, the police shooting is just laughable. The way that that's edited. But Michael, that's interesting to me because I thought, you know, when it happened, it bothered me, but then what bothered me more was that it fell in its in its complacent in the in the way that it was captured in 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 really a kind of a no frills. It felt very sure. kind of I guess that's very twelve years uh, approach, honestly. Well, but yeah. I, but I thought what was effective was that the camera regards it as just another, you know, as just another thing that happens, right? Which I thought did give it almost subversively, subversely a little bit more power because that that happens all the time, right? I mean, mean, you know, now the mechanics of how it happens and, you know, the minutiae, I suppose you could nitpick to the silliness of it, but, you know... The actual act felt cogently, you know, cogent, right? I mean, I when it happened it, with the cell phone and him lunging to get it, you know, I think it was kind. It was effective in the way that the camera didn't, at least in my opinion, overly dramatize it. Right? It felt very. I agree with that. Right? Yeah. So it's, I, it's not. I, I thought. I thought. Like the way they 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 make that sequence kind of play out is that he is so focused on like having this argument and getting between, okay, I want to go to this game, but now I have to go back and return this thing back to my father, like fucking hell. And then I just get pulled over and 
you just realize like he's in his own head. He's not worried about like what's what's about to happen. And then it happens and you're just like, oh fuck. You know? The one the one the one thing that I would agree with Mike with oh well, not not even agree with you, Michael, but uh, uh, disagree with myself is that the music kind of betrays it. The mm, music is mm-hmm. a little all over the place, which I feel like kind of betrays what I'm saying. I think the camera and the music aren't really aligned fully in that moment, which I do think is a McQueen thing that sometimes happens. Yeah. I think it happens in shame a lot too. It does. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think people don't talk about that enough when you talk about movies. That is something that is important, right? Where I think – The dissonance. You know, not to go down a rabbit hole, but like I've been listening to the Chris McQuarrie talking about making Fallout, right? Mm-hmm. And I think – You can listen movie, to a lot of that. <laughs> that movie's not yeah, – yeah, yeah. That movie's not perfect, but I do think – he talks about the music and the editing in such a way mm-hmm. that when you watch that movie and Rogue Nation, this the the synchronicity of those two elements really help those movies along. And I think going back to Widows, I do think the overdramatic music does betray the camera a bit in that scene. It does, but I think that in some way it, it still it helps to ground it in that genre that we keep saying, like talking about, like the the little bit of archness that allows some of this stuff to go down smoothly and not like it doesn't become an issue movie because of stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, like I love that scene despite its harrowing nature because of that. Like it, it's just it's one of those things where like when when a police shooting happens, it you start like hearing people like micromanaging it down to the second and like you you get a feeling of like this impending doom but in this movie it's such like a it's such a it's such a it's like a dumb moment that becomes infuriating because of what happens like and and you see like the complete and utter lack of build-up like it doesn't slow down there's not like insert shots to like people like like just like i can i can see a shitty version of this movie like slowing down as like the sun like reaches over to pick something up and then you see the cops behind him pulling their guns out and like making it (laughs) making it operatic and in this it's just like this is how quickly something could go bad just because this kid is 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 black or like presents as black when he's Mm -hmm. when he's really Mm -hmm. you know biracial like that's that's how fast and how sudden and how immediate and final that situation is and um yeah i i I dug it for that purpose see but my problem then is that i i understand what you're saying in a vacuum what you're saying about the editing there dan and and i can i i can somewhat yeah you're persuading me there but that then feels uncohesive with me cohesive to me when i think of a number of other shots in in this film i I mean if we want to talk about the scene in the gym we already talked about with the rap battle where the camera's roving around in a a circle i just wanted to scream because that type of shit just drives me crazy but like it's it's the fact that mcqueen does both of those things and tries to marry both those editing styles is something that just does not work for me at all yeah, like and the I think, one time that yeah. I think he does noticeable things that I liked was the the scene. I guess we've already spoken about it indirectly. Is uh, where the camera is 
literally put on the hood of the car. So we're seeing the exterior and then uh, how he how he shoots uh, people driving and, and like mm-hmm. how it's it's very um, it's very like. Uh, sorry, conspicuous in where the camera is placed and things like that. And that is the one time that it did work for me, but it didn't necessarily like add anything to the movie for me. And it didn't fall into like any thematic style. And I can, I, I, I hear what you guys are saying about like, you know, in the same way we're talking about the the sequence with her son, we could also talk about the way that, uh, the um we already spoke about it but the carrie coon scene and the liam neeson reveal you know with the insert of the uh canteen and the the door and everything and the way that's edited too like I, I, on some level i see i see those things and and they should be things where i'm like oh this is a great director but for whatever reason it just it just doesn't come together for me and it, it is little things like it you know, music was something. It was very strange that, like, I really loved the heist music in this. And then every time, like, the the, string, the strings would swell, I'm like, oh, man, this is just so overblown and is is making some of those moments tough for me. But it's, it's again, it's that combination um, of these different styles. And I... I'm not saying I can't do these different styles. Like I've talked about it a number of times on here. One of my favorite directors is Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> and he's someone who is constantly <laughs> playing with high and low and uh-huh. different uh-huh. styles and things like that. Fucking but, starship troopers, baby. But I think what it is, is that some of these things that we're talking about as subtexts that are made, that are, excuse me, are rendered into text in here. Those don't, work for me but some of the other things you're talking about do absolutely work like brian you were already talking about uh viola davis's proximity to or, or not proximity excuse me being stuck between kind of two worlds like being stuck in a wealthy white man's world but also dealing with the obstacles that come with the color of her skin and those things are great and and, and understated, like, I, I, you know, you also have the detail of Michelle Rodriguez, like, it's not ever said, but her store is a quinceanera store. Um, in the case of, in the case of, sorry, uh, Cynthia Urvio, like, oh my God, how do you say it, guys? Arrivo. 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 It's really Arrivo. not hard. <laughs> um, it's just, at this point now, my brain forgets every time. Yeah, now that we've been talking for almost two hours, we're all starting to get punchy. Uh, yeah, like Arivo, like her working in a salon and like specifically working in a ward that be predominantly black and that black people would be in the salon. There's even like a great detail when they're actually casing the house and she realizes one of the security guards comes into the salon and nothing necessarily from what I remember comes of that. No, that's how she finds out that her friend is giving kickbacks to Colin Farrell. No, okay, you're right. You're right. Okay, that All right, you're right. Never mind. But anyway, like <laughs> the way that that detail is deployed, like those are the times when I really think that he nails it and is on to something great. But it's it's again when it's when those things then uh lead into like direct textual moments is the stuff I just can't do. 
and that's just I I don't know. I don't really want to fight about this movie anymore. No, we're not fighting. I mean, I think that, I think everything you're saying makes sense. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I don't agree, but I think what yeah. I mean, I, I, from a directorial standpoint, he's somewhere between. You know, Spike Lee, for example. Sure. When he's making a movie, it's all you know. Every element of it is everything, right? I mean, in terms of <laughs> it, the hyperbole, right? I mean, that's his sure. style. I mostly love it, right? I'm, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. I'm, 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 I'm on board with his type of kind of abrasive, in-your-face style of filmmaking. And McQueen has moments like that 100%, but then also has moments where he wants the camera to linger outside of the thing for a long time to feel like you're, you know – not quite in the room where it happens, but almost in the room. And that there's a, there is a, there's a, um, you know, a not so quite in your face, but interesting layered thing happening. And then in other moments, it's not there. Right. So, so yeah, I, I think if you're not up for that kind of pick and choose auteurism to some degree, yeah, I can see how that doesn't flow. I think the wink I, – I think I'd like it a little bit more if the wink and grin was just a little more frequent. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting that one of our previous guests, uh, Matt Lynch, who we had on for The Predator, uh, you know, he's, he's a big fan of this film. But it's funny because he was describing it as, you know, like a modern Jack Hill film. Uh, you know, Jack Hill is uh, one of – one of the biggest black exploitation directors. And it was, you know, it was fascinating seeing him say that. And like, at one, at one, excuse me, on one hand agreeing with him, but on the other also feeling like this is a, like the, the total antithesis of something like black exploitation, because it's, because it does want us to take some of those things like so seriously and handles them in such a, uh, no, but, but this brings me back. Prestige, but yeah. yeah, but but yeah, but that brings me back to the point earlier of that's a time thing too. You know, like we look back at Shaft and Superfly mm-hmm. in this like retrospective way. Well, like, uh, it's back, the... like you know what I mean. Like when those movies came out, okay, they were hits in the worlds that they were hits in. You know, because people thought Richard Roundtree was badass and Ron O'Neill sure. was kicking ass as a pimp, right? The subtext in those films, and not if you watch the movie, it's not really even that subtextual. And even the remake of Superfly that came out <laughs> last year has a lot of that too. Those things, I think, generally just do better with time. I mean, you know what I mean? Like to watch it in the moment it feels like a Chicago movie that's trying to capture Chicago in this moment, almost like Chirac, speaking of Spike Lee, right? And I think as the years go by and the things that are touched on just kind of continue to seep into the fabric of our culture and our pop culture, all of those movies, generally speaking, do, like, they weigh into themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like... Mm. They, you know, and I think, and that can be good and that can be bad. I mean, you can pick movies that have aged badly in that way, right? I mean, you know, I, I don't know that any of us have seen Green Book, right? But Green Book is a movie coming out that feels <laughs> just on its face like a movie that would have come out thirty years ago. Sure, I um, right? <laughs> I was supposed to see that tonight. I just remembered. <laughs> uh, I had a screening for that literally when we began recording. 
I'm sure what? you'll Green get a Book screener. is surely Brian, Green Book is already over. That's how long we've been recording. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I you know, can I say one positive thing about this movie? I have I've heard a few people uh cottoning to a tweet that was going around comparing this to Crash and three billboards. And I and I want to say that I think that that's a pretty unfair characterization regardless of where you land on I'm three still, billboards all, or a crash. We need to get that person on this podcast cuz I don't understand that that I, that idea at all. That, do we really need to? <laughs> no, but see, I don't think I, so. But, but but see, here's my thing, right? Okay, this is the thing, right? Crash is a great example of the other side of this, right? Where sure. time has done bad things to crash. But this is my thing and I'm not going to get on my high horse about crash here because <laughs> I don't think it's some masterpiece, but I'll say this, okay? If Crash doesn't win Best Picture, you know, I think we think about it a little differently, right? Not saying, sure. once again, I'm not really... I think we wouldn't think about it literally at all if it didn't well, win maybe, Best Picture. Right? Maybe it's just a middling, you know, social, you know, you know, heavy-handed social movie, right? Sure. But I guess my point is simply, you know, if this movie... Right, three billboards, right? Similar situation. If it doesn't become the Oscar... This is also, you know what is happening with our, the way we cover things these days as well. Right. You know, if three billboards doesn't become this, you know, Oh, this is what middle America is and Francis McDormand and this, and, you know, I think the movie is what I think it is, which is a basically, you know, pretty intelligent, dark comedy with a really, really good central performance. Right. So, you know, that's how I feel about the movie. But I do think when we're talking about time and we're talking, you know, these are the things that inform the way that we think back about, you know, creative endeavors. And I don't, I think discounting those things is, is, uh, you know, you know, is not, uh, smart or, or just, you're, you're not taking the whole thing into account. Obviously with widows, it just came out. So we'll see what happens. All right. So yeah, we got to wrap I, this up. It's yeah. been two hours. <laughs> Um, I, I'll say oddly Dan's argument about I, I I'm now very curious what I see in this movie when I watch it ten years from now. <laughs> I, I I think that cool. he's right. onto something there. I win. I win this <laughs> argument. Hooray! I um we literally Great. talked about like nothing in this movie. I'm uh, yes we did. Yes, really we upset. Did. We didn't didn't touch on anything that I was looking forward to. Um, so let's uh let's wrap we, it we up. We talked about the dog. Come on, that dog. We talked about everything. Ah, uh, yeah, whatever. Okay, so no, that's it Widow. for today. Widows is out in theaters now. Go check it out. Um, it's uh, at least going to be interesting to talk about. So <laughs> let's uh let's. I let's, ruined Brian's holiday spirit. <laughs> I was so excited to talk about this movie, and I feel like I don't even know what the fuck we talked about for the last two hours. I don't hours. even understand so, what you're ta- That was a great conversation. I'm I'm hopeful that our listeners think so as well. Um, again, find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook The Film Stage Show. Give us a comment or rating on iTunes. Email us your thoughts on Widows, podcastfilmstage.com. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash Show and give us your money. And, of course, we are brought to you by Mubi. Where Michael still has 28 days to watch Hunger by Steve McQueen. If you would like a free 30-day trial of movie, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Um, 
It's uh, we're coming up on the holiday, one of the holidays. This is uh, Thanksgiving week, so um, not sure when the next episode will come out. Mm-hmm. We've been uh, getting screeners and such, so we might be able to pump some extra episodes out because we won't have to go to the theaters. And um, yeah, I would say that our next is probably going to be Green Book. What about Creed Two? What about Creed Two? He's got royalty in his DNA. That's what I know about Creed Two. <laughs> I have concerns about Creed Two. Um, if only, only because they're going back to the Drago well already, you know. But uh, it could be fun. Could be fun. Coogler didn't come back, but I feel like it still could be fun. So I like that Stallone Rocky. The what is it? Rocky Bell. Rocky Balboa. Yeah, no, that it's, was it's pretty Ivan good. Drago was like Rocky Four. No, back. no, no, but but Stallone directing. Isn't it? Isn't oh, Rocky, directing? yeah, Rocky, Rocky Six, Rocky Balboa. Yeah, no, Rocky Balboa is a fine movie. Stallone directing. No, no, no. Now. Michael is saying that he liked Rocky Balboa, directed by Sly Stallone from like 2005, okay. right? But I thought this one is directed by Sly Stallone. No, no, no. no, no, no this no. is gonna, Steve no. Cappell Jr. Yeah. No, 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 no. Well, never mind. <laughs> Clearly, Michael is very excited for this. Um. He has huh. directed episodes of Grown-ish and a 2016 oh, movie okay. called The Land. Yeah, there were a lot of rappers in that. Okay. Yeah, he's, a good, he's, a good young, he's a good young director. Yeah, it could be interesting to see what he does. I, I'm assuming that uh, Coogler and, and Jordan had a, had a say in who got to continue the story for them. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, anyway, what was that? Uh, yeah. You said Jordan, and I thought, I thought you were talking about Raup. And yeah, I was like, our huh? bedevil lord and master Jordan Raup was the producer on Creed 2 to the point oh, that he had God. green light on the director. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow. Crazy. Um, so we're going to – That's a. this is a long-winded, meandering, nonsensical way of saying there will be more episodes. We don't know when they'll come out, and we don't know what they're on. In the meantime well, – uh, let's tell the fine people at home where they can find us between now and the next episode. Let's start with Michael Snedell. Uh You can find me on Twitter where I will be detailing all of the things that Widows gets wrong about Chicago. And uh, on Letterboxd, <laughs> at, uh, my name. <laughs> when are you going to detail all the things that Happy Endings gets wrong about Chicago? Ah, I like that. I it's a great gave show. up on happy endings after uh, two episodes. What? Oh my, Michael! Oh. <laughs> All right, That's let's it. end this. Let's end this. End podcast. it now. All right, uh, Bill Graham. Do, 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 do. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at cablebfg. You can find me uh, definitely not grabbing anybody's dog. Um, <laughs> you can find me on the Slack channel as well. Uh, okay um dan mecca you can find me on twitter at dj mecca and you can find me um on the other the little spinoff pod we got going called the b-side that i host um the next step will be um on probably monday or tuesday after the holiday i'm gonna be doing a podcast with my lovely mother about the b-sides of richard gear and meg ryan so look out for that nice nice um you can find me on a future episode of the b-side talking about colin farrell hell yeah (laughs) hell yeah gonna be a great time um of course you can find me on twitter at brian j rowan it's where i can be found on everything really Where's the site? BrianJerone.com slash Deerfilm, or not slash, because that makes it sound like it's also the same URL. BrianJerone.com or Deerfilm.net. 
And of course, you can find all of us doing all of our junk over at thefilmstage.com, where you can also find every episode that has ever been produced to this show and the B-side. So ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us, and tune in next time. Cold black wind, it pulls in the drive.